0: Hey, this is Eric and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. We are in part two of the series called Family Matters. And uh, where we left off last week, is really last week was just all about tension. Uh, It was tension-filled because we were talking about this tension that we all feel in our families, and it is the tension that exists between real versus ideal. That in all of our families, there's the reality of where our families are at and what our families look like and the things that we've experienced together, and then there's the ideal of maybe what we think family should look like or what uh, we think God thinks family should look like. There's that Target that we were aiming for from the very beginning. And then there's the reality of where we really are. Uh, maybe real for you today to like, get real right out of the gate. Maybe real for you today is you're going through a divorce, uh, and that's certainly a painful and emotional thing. Uh, maybe what's real for you is that you're on your second marriage and things aren't working out so well. And it's not what you expected on the front side, right? Maybe what's real is you're a newlywed and it's uh, not as easy as you thought it was going to be, right? Like that you're in that honeymoon has started to wear off phase. and They do that weird thing with their toothbrush that just drives you crazy, and you're like, I don't know how to handle this. I wasn't prepared. Nobody told me. Uh, Maybe what's real is you've got kids. Uh, Maybe what's real is you want to have kids, and and you don't have them yet, and it's difficult to navigate. Uh, Maybe what's real is you have kids, and they're not behaving. You've got that prodigal son that is off wherever he is or she is. Uh, Maybe for you, you've got that husband who won't come to church with you, or there's just, like, tension in your family, whatever it may be. Like, I don't know everybody's specific story, I don't know what it is for you, but there's reality for all of us, right? There's something real, and then there's the ideal. There's what we want family to look like, or what we expected family to look like, or again, what we thought maybe God wants family to look like, and in that gap between real and ideal, there is a tension. There's this tension that we feel, and Uh, because there's that tension there and because we live in a culture that really uh, wants to do away with tension wherever we find it, like we're so quick if something feels uncomfortable to run to comfort and try and just get tension out of the way, uh, regardless of how dysfunctional your family may be or or how much you're struggling in your reality and in your marriage or your family life, Uh, the current culture moment that we live in uh, basically is quick to say like, hey, it's okay, right, wherever you're at, it's okay, like just relax, Everybody goes through it. Like uh, in, we live in a culture right now that is so tempted to normalize everything so that we don't feel bad about anything that often as it relates to our families, uh, we're like often normalizing wherever we're at so that we don't feel bad about wherever we're at. Uh, this is a little bit of a sidebar rant, but this is like the same kind of culture that created the every kid gets a trophy approach. And uh, I'm, I'm just here to tell you like they know. The kids know, okay? That's why you have that drawer in your house or, or your kitchen where like all of the participation awards go because they're just like, I didn't do anything to get it, right, I showed up sometimes. And it, it, so like th- this is this idea whether anybody won or not, everybody gets a trophy, and uh, it's not a trophy if everybody gets the trophy, right? It's just stuff, but at any rate, that's my dysfunction and my sidebar for the day. Uh, we live in this culture, and, and again, it's not all bad, but the impulse is so strong for nobody to feel badly, for nobody to feel uncomfortable, to remove all the tension that when we start start to feel badly about our family circumstance. When we start to feel badly about where we find ourselves in our reality, uh, we'll hear things like, "Hey, it's okay. It's okay, right? Everybody. E- everybody goes through stuff like this. Everybody's family I- is a little broken at times, but I think there's still something inside all of us. No matter how normal we want to make our reality feel, there's something inside of us that still feels that tension. That there's something inside of us that still knows there's a gap between our reality and between the ideal. And uh, if not for yourself, I think we feel this when we think about our kids or when we think about our grandkids. Because maybe for you, you've normalized a reality that's less than ideal, but when you think about your kids, when you think about grandkids, when you think about the next generation, isn't it true that you want better for your kids than you have for yourselves? That the, the the ideal suddenly is back on the table. The ideal suddenly exists again, and so uh, we're forced to face this reality that there really is a tension sometimes between what we experience and what we're told is normal, and this sense of ideal that like it's still possible for a man and a woman to fall in love and stay in love till death do us part, and it's still possible to have kids who want to come home and see you after they've moved out, uh, or to have families that are like genuinely family centered. It's still possible to believe that, and there's just enough of that ideal still in most of us that when we're confronted with the reality of where we're at, the tension just won't go away. No matter what culturally we're trying to do or how normal we try and make it, the tension won't leave and then Jesus comes along. And Jesus shows up and he uh, makes it painfully clear that yes, there is a tension between what's real and what's ideal. When Jesus shows up, he took the ideal and he just like jacked it up even higher. Okay, Jesus shows up and he raises the standard time and time again. He says, hey, you you thought you knew what the ideal was? Actually, it's even higher than you think it is. But at the same time, Jesus says, but I don't condemn you if you don't reach it. I don't condemn you if you don't reach that standard That, that Jesus says like, the standard is higher than you think that it is, but I don't condemn you if you failed to live up to it. Or as we said last week, Jesus raised the standard on all kinds of things, but certainly as it relates to our family. Jesus raised the standard and yet deepened the grace. Essentially Jesus was saying, I don't want you to let go and lose sight of the fact uh, in light of what's real, like, I don't want you to lose sight of ideal in light of what's real. Instead, I want you to live in the tension. I want you to live in the tension that exists. And at the same time, I want you to live with the confidence and, and the satisfaction that God's grace is deep enough for wherever you find yourself today. And, and so that whole thing, right, this idea that, that we can't let go of either side or else we may lose something important, that we have to live in the tension, that is the context for where we're going to go over the rest of this series together and uh, today is a great day for you to be here regardless of where you're at spiritually or what you believe uh, because what we're going to talk about today you can apply and you can do and if you're not in for the whole Jesus thing you can just tell your friends you made it up and they'll think you're incredibly smart because it'll still work for you okay but but if you're here and you are a person who's like no I'm trying to I'm trying to get this right like I really am trying to follow Jesus then for you today what we're going to talk about it's not optional for us it's not like an additional add on. It comes with the territory of following Jesus. We have been called to live inside that tension between the real and the ideal. And so we're people who have grace. We receive God's grace towards ourselves. We extend God's grace towards other people who live in difficult situations. And at the same time, we refuse to let go of the ideal and we refuse to normalize or, or bring down the standard for ourselves and for our children and for our grandchildren as it relates to family. So, I'm. Um, for the next couple of weeks, we're gonna look at the ideal in the context of a less than ideal world. And uh, last week, we also said that in the Old Testament, if you just open up your Bible and you start flipping through, looking for an ideal family, you will not find one. In, in fact, all you will find is bad examples. There is not a single functional family in the entirety of the Old Testament. A lot of killing, a lot of violence, a lot of bad stuff, but they all put the fun in dysfunctional in the Old Testament, it's ridiculous. And then we said when we get to the New Testament, it's not much better. There really are no good examples of family or a biblical family in the Bible. Uh, Like Jesus's parents, they lost him. He was 12 and they're only one and they just left him. They had kind of a big job. So it, it was all a mess is my point. But what we do have in the New Testament are teachings about family and, and teachings about what family is supposed to look like, teachings that refer to this ideal. And last week, we summarized uh, basically all of what you'll find about family in the New Testament. We broke it down into this list, and here's what it says. It basically says, husbands, love your wives and be considerate. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. And fathers, don't exasperate your children. That's pretty much the whole thing, right there. That's just like an overview of what the New Testament has to say about family, and it seems idealistic out there, right? Or maybe even old-fashioned or, or, or out of date. Like, husbands love your wives perfectly, check. <laughs> or or wives submit to your husbands. You're like, do, do you know who my husband is? I'm not submitting to him. Like, are, are you kidding me? Nothing would get done. Like, like, Children, obey your parents. You're like, my parents haven't had a thought since 1981. I'm not going to obey my parents. Like, what are you talking about? Or don't exasperate my kids. Like, you ought to meet my kids. They exasperate me. <laughs> like, like, We've all felt that before. And yet, this is the target. This is the ideal. This is what the New Testament says is the goal for families. If you want to know what a Christian family, if you want to use that language, looks like, it, it's this. And as soon as we look at the list, if you're like me, we go, fail. Fail, 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 right? There's that gap between the ideal and the reality that we face. But in in light of that, Jesus says, don't normalize it. Don't lose sight of the ideal. Don't lose sight of the target. He says, I understand what's real, and I understand what's ideal, but I want you to learn to live with that tension. And so today, just for fun, I thought, why don't we jump in to the most difficult one to talk about, the most uh, politically incorrect, the most offensive, the most major skin crawl maybe uh, item on that list, especially if you're a woman here today. And why don't we talk about this idea of submission? It says wives submit to your husbands. And that idea, again, it seems outdated at best, right? It seems antiquated at best. It seems potentially oppressive at worst. This idea of submission and specifically submission targeted towards wives or towards women This has been so misused and so abused in so many settings, including so many church cultures along the way. And yet, this is such an incredibly important teaching in Scripture. And the reason that it's important is because this is actually an application to women of a principle that's given to everyone. And that's the point that people often don't understand and often when we talk about this. I mean, this is one of the things that make people look at the church and go like, you wanna be uh, like those people? Uh Uh-uh, I don't believe that stuff. But, But what this is, is this is a principle that was given to everyone. And in the verses we're gonna look at today, it's an application point that Paul makes specifically to a specific group of wives or of women. Because, again, the Bible didn't just fall out of the sky and it's not like this magic glowing book. They're letters that were written to real people in real history with real context and real stories just like us today. So here's exactly what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Ready? Like, we'll get through it together. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And again, like this feels, ugh, right? It feels powered up. It feels like, as you do to the Lord? Like that's pretty serious stuff. It, really? Really, Paul? Like, and in fact, this is just a sidebar, but if anybody ever comes to you and, and they're like fired up about this verse and they're like, look what it says, right? Wives, submit yourselves. My number one go-to, if I'm ever on the other side of somebody like that, is to be like, yeah, yeah, what's the first word? Wives, okay? And I, is that you? If it's, the answer's no, it's not to you. It's not about you. And, and there's a lot of things that say husbands. And if you read those and do those, you'll be in much better shape than if you just bludgeon somebody with the other. So that's free today if you ever wanna use it. But let me tell you why this is so important. It, it's because here's what happened. Jesus had this approach to life. Jesus had this ethic or this, this theme that ran underneath his entire ministry and everything that he taught. And it essentially was this idea that the ultimate value is love. As it relates to God, the ultimate value behind everything that we do or ought to do is love and everything should be about love. And Jesus actually said that the entire law, like the entire Old Testament, all 600 something laws, can be summed up in loving your neighbor as yourself and loving God with your whole heart. And people actually asked him like, hey Jesus, what is the most important commandment? And he said, love. In fact, he said, I'm going to give you a new commandment and it's to love one another the way that I loved you. So, This is like Jesus' ethic, his guiding principle, his number one thing is that we should love one another. And then guys like Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, uh, guys like Peter, who followed Jesus and wrote letters to early church communities, they came along afterwards, and they saw these new Christian ecclesias or, or gatherings or groups of people, the word that eventually got translated as church. They see these gatherings of early Jesus followers and they're trying to figure out what it means and in the midst of them there's families and there's parents and there's kids and there's husbands and wives and there's all the normal issues that come with family life together and they're starting to ask like, okay, we, we hear Jesus' teachings about love, but how do we take those teachings and actually apply that to the dynamics of a family? How do we actually apply that in the midst of family, not life? And we kind of gloss over it because it's the Bible and we think it's gonna talk about things like family, but this had never been done before at this point in human history. This approach that said like the family could be guided by an ethic of love, that was a new idea in the first century when these authors started writing these letters. Like uh, people talked about love. Love existed before Jesus and like it was culturally a thing, but nobody prior to Jesus and prior to the movement of the church, nobody would have looked at a family and said that everything should be driven through the grid of the question of what love requires of us. How do I love somebody as much as I love myself? This was a radical new idea and it feels old-fashioned to us in some ways it feels antiquated at times but it was radical in the first century because there had never been a culture and certainly never a family culture or a relational culture that was built around that idea up to that point basically the approach was that might makes right right or that uh, whoever has the gold makes the rules I- and it was all just about power and those kinds of sayings so it was Rome right Rome had the right Rome is the one who had the power and before that it was Egypt And before that, it it was the Greeks. And it was basically that all about whoever had power, who determined what was right and how we should treat one another. And then Jesus introduces this principle that those with the power should actually use their power for people who are powerless. Jesus introduces this idea that you should leverage your power for the sake of other people. And this was brand new at the time. So... Peter and Paul hear this new idea, and they come along, and what they say is, like, how do we actually apply this, and what does this actually look like as it relates to family? And, and he starts to take the central teaching of Jesus and apply it to every area, and it just so happens he started out referring to wives. He started out referring to wives. It's not like this is exclusively about women, and in fact, this is verse 22 of chapter 5, okay? Ephesians 5:22 is the one that says, "'Wives, submit to your husbands.'" Here's what Ephesians 5:21 says, OK? Because again, verse 21 gives us this overarching principle that verse 22 is an application point of. And here's what 5:21 says. It says, "Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ." Same word, right? Submit to one another." So in other words, Paul is saying, "All of you, Jesus' followers." right? All of you church people, all of you who are trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus in the midst of your families, like, let me give you this overall principle. Submit to one another, and then I'm going to apply it in different contexts. And essentially what Paul is saying is everybody submit to everybody in your family. Everybody submit to everybody. And here's a big concept that can be such a game changer in our family matters and in our family life together if we actually understand it and we actually apply it. And it is the idea not just of submission, but of mutual submission. The idea of mutual submission where everybody submits to everybody in the family. So again, this is what Paul was doing. He says in verse 21, mutual submission, everybody submit to everybody. And then he starts to apply it in specific contexts. He says, okay, let me tell you how that looks. Wives, here's how you should do it. Husbands, here's how you should do it. Children, here's how you should do it. And parents, fathers, here's what you're supposed to do, and essentially applies it. So that verse, wives submit to your husbands, is basically this application of the overall principle that says all of us should submit to everyone. All of us should submit to everyone else in our families. And did you catch why Paul said we should do that? He said, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, we don't submit ourselves to one another in the family out of reverence for each other. Because let's face it, we aren't always worth submitting to, are we? Like as a fellow, each other, we're not always worth submitting to one another. But in other words, I'm supposed to submit to the members of my family, not because they're inherently worth submitting to all the time, but because I'm doing it out of reverence for Jesus. And this is so powerful. I'm telling you, this can be life-changing and family changing if you actually make it central in your family. This is what Christian families are supposed to do and how they're supposed to treat one another and I think it should be like the driving force behind what our families look like. Uh, There's always this tension between real and ideal but our like guiding star, our north star in this conversation can be this principle of mutual submission which essentially says I'm going to leverage my power and I'm going to leverage my assets and I'm going to leverage what I have for your benefit. For the benefit of the person on the other side of you whether i'm the father or the mother or the sister or the brother or the cousin or the aunt or grandma or grandpa i'm going to look for ways that i can get under your burden for your sake out of reverence for christ because what did jesus do for us he got up under the burden of our sin and he leveraged his power He leveraged his resources. He leveraged everything that he had going for him, all of his authority and his position. He leveraged it for the sake of us. Jesus, there's a sense in which he put us first. He died for your sin and died for my sin so that you don't have to. And then Peter and Paul and the other New Testament writers start uh, writing because they're overwhelmed with this extraordinary sense of grace and of mercy and this whole idea that Jesus might leverage his power for the sake of other people. And they remembered Peter remembered, Paul heard about it, this time where Jesus had his followers gathered together and they were sitting there. They remember that day in the upper room where uh, the text actually tells us Jesus suddenly had this realization that all authority and power were given to him. It's kind of a big deal, right? It's this dramatic moment. Jesus realizes the authority and the power that he has. And so in this dramatic moment, he gets up and the very next thing he does, the writer tells us, is he grabs a towel and he gets down and he starts washing the feet of his followers. With all power, with all authority, he gets down and he starts serving. And his followers are so freaked out by by the idea that like their master and their Lord and ultimately their savior was washing their dirty feet. They're like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, we should be doing this to you, right? You're the leader. You just said you have the power. You have the authority. We should be doing this to you. But Jesus essentially said, no, 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 no. I'm setting for you an example that the more power you have, that the more authority that you have, to that extent, you should become a servant of the people around you. So now Peter and Paul are thinking, okay, so what does that mean in a family? What does that mean in the context of family life? And Paul comes up with this idea that Jesus, that just like how Jesus, our Lord, submitted himself for those under his authority, so everybody in a family should submit themselves to one another out of reverence, not for the people in the family, but out of reverence for what Christ did for us. And he introduces this powerful principle of mutual submission. This is just my opinion. But this idea, this principle of mutual submission, I think it is like the most powerful relational dynamic there is, not just in a family, but really anytime humans interact with one another, whether it's the company you work for, the neighborhood you live in, or the team that you're on, or your group of friends. Like when a group of people comes together, and they say like, I'm gonna loan you my influence, I'm gonna loan you my power. I'm gonna loan you my status or even my wealth. And, and everybody does that in the group. It is the most powerful dynamic possible in those relationships. And it was modeled for us by Jesus. So Paul comes along and he says, if you wanna follow Jesus in your family matters, here's what it looks like. Submit yourself to one another out of reverence for Christ. And the message of mutual submission, the thing that we really are saying to one another, is we say, hey, I'm here for you. Right, like the message of mutual submission is I'm here for you, I'm not here for me. Regardless of where we fall on the family hierarchy, regardless of where I'm at on the family tree, whether it's father, mother, child, third born, second born, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, I'm here to leverage who I am and what I have for your benefit and for your sake. This principle, when it's applied, it communicates that nobody in the family matters more than anybody else in the family, that we mutually submit to one another. And last week, if you remember, you were paying attention, I told you I was going to give you a question, that if you actually started applying this and started practicing it in your family life, it could change everything in your family. And this question, uh, it's the natural question that mutual submission leads us to ask. And it's going to seem really dissatisfying on the surface, okay? You're like, that's what all the buildup was for, but let me tease it out. The question is simply, what can I do to help? What can I do to help? That's the question that mutual sugmi- submission begs us to ask. It's how can I leverage who I am and what I have and what I have access to for the benefit of the person on the other side of you? What can I do to help? And this is honestly more unnatural to us than we want to admit, so I'm going to make you practice it for just a second. Okay, I'm going like to count three, two, one, and let's all just together say the words on the screen. Okay, three, two, one. What can I do to help? Right? Some of you, it's like the first time you've ever said that. but. It could be such a game changer in your family. Like, like think about this for just a second. If everybody in your family, like once a day, I- if they actually ask this question, I believe wholeheartedly that your family dynamic could change. That if every day, everybody in your family at least once a day was willing to ask, what can I do to help? Because you know what this is? This is an offer. This is an invitation to the people in our family where we say, hey, I'm gonna offer all I am for all that you need. Like I'm gonna loan you me. And just real quickly, I want to talk to a couple specific groups of us to tease this out. So, like kids in the room, especially like middle school, high schoolers, if you're around there, like I'm telling you, if you go home, even today, you go home this afternoon and, and you go up to your parents and you say, What can I do to help? Your parents are not going to, like, you're going to have to pick them up off the floor. They are gonna be so extraordinarily confused. You don't even have to wait. Like, don't wait two or three weeks until your parents have forgotten about this message. Okay, you can do it this afternoon and you walk in and they'll know that you're just saying it because I told you to. Okay, like, they'll they'll know all about it. It's still gonna have an emotional impact. Or if you wait till tomorrow and you come back from school and you walk in the door and you're like, hey mom or dad, like, before I go up to my room and sulk or whatever, before I get busy, like, (laughs) what can I do to help you? They will be so shocked they won't even have an answer. Okay, they'll be so shocked that they're just like, uh, uh, and you'll go upstairs and they'll be in the kitchen like, what, what just happened, right? They're, they're trying to figure it out and, and you get the credit and they're just trying to figure out what you just did or if you want like extra points, do it when they have friends over, okay? Do it when they have friends over and just walk in and be like, hey, I hope you're having a great dinner party. Is there anything I can do to help you? Again, they'll be so stunned, they'll just like send you upstairs and then all of their friends are gonna be like, tell me how you did it. Like, <laughs> you cracked the code, how, how did you know? But in all seriousness, you don't know the emotional impact it could have if kids, if you do this to your parents, if you would approach them and say, what can I do to help you? Or parents, right? D- uh, depending on what age and stage your kids are in, isn't it true that sometimes things can just get negative really quickly? Like, I, my daughter just turned five this past week, but like, four to five year old little girl, life for me, it's like, it's a lot of saying no. Okay, it's a lot of, no, we can't, because she's figuring out where the limits are, right? So it's a lot of, no, we can't do that. No, we're not doing that right now. No, I'm tired of doing that, right? A lot of that. Uh, It's a lot of answering why, right, and explaining stuff. It's definitely a lot of talking, okay? And it can be so easy in the midst of that for things to just be, uh, trend towards the negative, where I have to tell her no all the time, or I have to be corrective, or there's seasons where you're more instructing and and looking for those teachable moments and all that stuff. I want to challenge every parent in the room today. What if one time a day, you got eyeball to eyeball with your kids and you actually ask them, hey, what can I do to help you I- in whatever it is that you're going after, right? Like, like what? If, hey, honey, just in general, like, what can I do to help you, right? When they say, hey, mom, I'm going to go do this. What if you responded, hey, what can I do to help? Again, it would be so disarming to your family life. Hey, hey dad, I want this. Well, how can I help, right? Is there any way that I can leverage who I am for the sake of what you're doing or what you're becoming. This is so important because you know what this does, parent to child? It keeps the conversation from always being negative. It keeps the conversation from always being corrective because if you're not careful, life is busy. And I get this, like especially if you work outside of the home and, and you're away at an office and you're busy and you get there at the end of the day and your kids are kind of already in their busy mode or they're doing their stuff and you get there and it's just like all about bedtime routine and I got to get them to bed so that I can get my like one hour of being a human without a kid around before I have to go to bed. And uh, like it's so easy to fall into that. But what if you paused all of that? And in the midst of that routine, in the midst of that business, you just said, hey, h- honey, like I'm here for you. What can I do to help? Uh, ladies, like wives, girlfriends, fiancés, whatever it may be, your situation. Uh, women, this is a powerful question for you to say to a man. A- and listen, here's what most likely will happen, okay? You'll go, hey, is there anything I can do to help? And most guys are gonna go, uh-uh, I'm good, right? Like, no, I got it. A- and that's fine. Like, the, the, the power of this isn't necessarily the result of this, but do you know what it says to a man or to another person, really, when you say, hey, how can I help? It says, I'm aware. I'm aware of the burden that you carry. I'm aware of the things that you're doing. And I'm not trying to interfere with any of that, but I'm just wondering, like, what can I do to help? Is there anything that I can leverage? Can I leverage my extra time for your benefit? Is there a way that I can leverage my talents? Is there a way that I can take something off your plate so that you can continue to pursue and do the things that you feel like God has called you and led you to do? What can I do to help. Men, this is such a powerful thing for us to ask the women in our lives. A- and, and here's the thing, like, if you're not asking this question on a somewhat regular basis of like, hey, what can I do to help? More, off, more likely than not, uh, the woman in your life probably has some type of needs that she could use some help with, that she, she would be willing to ask, and she probably hasn't answered the question, right, if you're gonna ask it. But if you don't ask this question, she most likely naturally feels this kind of resistance from you, that, that if she asks you, she's burdening you with something, or, or, or if she asks you, like, there's just this power dynamic maybe at play because it's just kind of the result of the world that we live in. A- and so when you ask this question, when you're willing to go there first and you say, hey, well, how can I help you, you open the door. And that's true in in any context, in any relationship within your family. This question, what can I do to help, is the bridge, practically speaking, to bring a mutual submission into your home. And look, I get it. Like, it seems kind of simple. It seems kind of like, really, this is what we're talking about today? Is like, how can I help? Yes, because while it may seem simple, it is so extraordinarily powerful if we take that attitude towards one another, and yet there's a barrier to it. And, and, And do you know what the barrier to us doing this is? It's fear. And do you know what we're afraid of? Maybe men more than women, although I don't know. Certainly kids are afraid of this. Do you know what we're afraid of if we ask, how can I help or what can I do to help? We're afraid that they'll answer, <laughs> right? Like we're afraid that they'll actually say like, yeah, and then we end up pulling weeds out in the garden or like working on the car or whatever, maybe. Like we're afraid that if we actually do this and we actually ask somebody, hey, what can I do to help regularly? If that's the posture that we take, that somebody is gonna take advantage of us. We're afraid that somebody is actually going to pull us off of our path and onto theirs. That they're going to leverage what we've got going on for us for their benefit. That they're going to take some of it. And that we'll actually have to do something that we don't want to do. That we're going to have to do something that takes away from what we're doing. And then suddenly, we're not first anymore. (laughs) And then we're afraid that we actually have to answer the question, what can I do to help? And that is why Ephesians 5.21 is so extraordinarily important for us to understand and to imply that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because there is a sense in which God looked at this big, messed up world, and Jesus said, hey, Father, what can I do to help? <laughs> what can I do to help? And the Father said, you don't want to know. <laughs> and Jesus is like, no, really, what can I do to help? And The Father goes, Look, it's going to cost you your life. And Jesus says, I'll do it. And the Father's like, no, 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 like, you're going to be in second place. You don't deserve it. But you're gonna have to. You're gonna have to go to the back of the line. You're gonna have to go behind every person who's ever lived if you really want to help them. And Jesus says, "I'll do it." He humbled himself even to death on a cross. And, and Paul, who spent time with the men who, who saw Jesus die on the cross, he said, "Out of reverence for Jesus, throw open your potential, your time, and your talent and your everything, and make it available to somebody else." And yes they may take advantage of it. And yes, you may have to be number two sometimes. And yes, it may keep you from getting everything done that you want to get done, but welcome to following Jesus. Out of reverence and gratitude for the fact that that's what your Savior did for you, you get to do that for the people closest to you, for the people in your family. And and here's the good news, 99.9% of the times, it is not gonna cost you your life, okay? But it may cost you a little time, or a little energy, or a little money, or a little sweat, or a little frustration, especially if you're assembling Ikea furniture, right? It'll be a lot of frustration. But but we fear this. And, And here's the thing, and then we'll move on. We fear this, but it could be so, so, so extraordinarily powerful if we did it, if we applied it. We're all walking around in our families like Dorothy with the slippers on, right? Like, you know the story. She, she goes all the way through Oz, and she's looking for a way to get home. She wants the thing that she uh, wants the most. She's trying to get back, and she was wearing the slippers the whole time. She had the way the whole time, and we're all navigating our families, and we have this power inside of us every single day to take this posture of mutual submission, and, and do you know what actually makes for a happy family? Do you know what makes a, a really happy family? It's the families who have said, hey, I'm willing to leverage all of me for an us, right? I, I'm willing to leverage all of me for an us. That is a great family. A- and, and you know this because you can anticipate what it would feel like, right? If your wife or your mother-in-law, although she never would, but if, if one of your family members, right, came and <laughs> whoever's a part of your family, every single day they came to you and said, hey, what can I do to help you? How can I help? I mean, imagine what that would do to your heart and to your soul, over time. If you knew somebody in your family had that posture towards you, and and you have the same potential to do that back for them, the only reason we wouldn't do this, the only reason I don't do this, is because you're selfish, right? And and that means, uh, like this is the important part, it means you're not willing to give yourself fully to that equation. You're not willing to loan yourself fully to it, which means you won't ever be fully happy with your family either, because your whole approach to family is going to be, if I could just get everybody to do what I tell them to do, if I could just get everybody to do what I want them to do, then I'll be happy. But the truth is you won't. You might be large and in charge. Okay, You might have control, but you will not be happy and you will not be satisfied because happiness doesn't equal getting everybody to do what you want them to do in your family. Happiness, especially in a family, is a result of mutual submission. It's giving yourself and being willing to loan yourself to everybody else in that circle. Being willing to give up me for an us. You don't get happy by controlling the people around you. You get happy when you give yourself for the people around you, just like Jesus did for you. And and this question, if we actually ask it, how can I help you? It causes us to lean in instead of pull away. And in a lot of our family relationships, like, we're not even aware of it. But if you're not asking this question, if you're not taking this posture, you're likely pulling away from one another without even talking about it, without even being aware of it. Some of you, uh, the person who lives with you, you're like, man, they're so distant, they're pulling away. But if you have the courage to say, how can I help? To open it up, it leans you in. It pulls you closer together. The key to a great family, the key to great relationships, but especially in a family, is mutual submission. And and maybe you hear this and you're like, okay, okay, okay. Like I hear it and that sounds good, we should be helpful, whatever, I'll try. But does that mean nobody's in charge, right? does that mean like nobody's an authority, that nobody actually makes the decisions? We just sit around going, no, you first, no, you first. No, you Like, we can't even leave the house, right? We can't walk through the door. because It's like, no, you first, no, you first. Like, it, it, there's only one piece of chicken left, and you're like, no, oh, you take it, no, you take it, and then mom's mad because it's cold because everybody's just submitting all the time. Like, is that what we do? No, okay, and this is so important. This principle of mutual submission has nothing to do with authority whether or not somebody is in authority or whether or not somebody is in charge. This principle of mutual submission has everything to do with what we do with our authority. It has nothing to do with who's in charge and has everything to do with what we do when we're in charge. It has nothing to do with the decision-making process, but it has everything to do with how we manage and how we approach the decision-making process process. And like dads, if you're here and you feel strongly like God has made you the head of the household, that's fine. I have room for that, okay? But then be the head of the household in the way that Jesus is the head of the church. That's the, that's the back half of that. And, and so that doesn't mean you lord it over people. That doesn't mean I'm dad and I get my way and this is how it goes. Jesus is the head of the church and he gave himself up for the sake of everybody in the church. And, and Nobody looks at Jesus and questions, is he in charge of the church? Is that what's going on? I mean, maybe we do, but like on principle, nobody's like, Jesus doesn't have the authority to be leading the church. Well, like, of course he does. But do you know what Jesus did? He gave himself up for every single one of us. So it, it, authority and submission, they're not opposed. This principle of mutual submission is about how we leverage our authority. And if you give up your position, you're not giving up your authority. You're giving up the power that comes with your authority, just like Jesus did for you. And in fact, the more power that you have, the better servant you should be. I, I, was, I read that and run through today, like I wrote on the paper earlier this week, but <laughs> I read and run through today and I was like, <sighs> can you imagine what our world would look like if we just believed that? The more power you have, the better servant you should be. Like, uh, There's people who need to learn that, and it's all of us. <laughs> but if you're not a Christian, okay, and you're hearing all this, you can like pull out the Jesus stuff and just go do it, and it'll work for you. okay. And you can tell your friends that you figured it all out on your own. That's fine. If you are a Jesus follower, if you are a Christian, this isn't optional for us. This isn't just a bonus. This isn't just a good idea to add on to your following Jesus. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus in your family. Paul talks about this in another letter uh, he wrote to the church in Rome. He's talking about the way that Jesus gave himself for us. And he says it in this way. He said, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And when he says we were helpless, that's, that's what we're talking about, right? That means we need some help. Like we had an answer to the question, how can I help you? We were helpless. And Jesus died for the ungodly when he saw us in need. And do you know who the ungodly are? It's all of us, okay? Because the ungodly are the people who are like, yeah, here's the ideal, and then here's my real, and I don't care how close you are, there's a gap. Okay, I don't know how pretty and shiny you can get, but there's still a gap. It is all of us. There is a gap between all of us. It's the people whose real don't match ideal that Jesus died for. And Paul goes on and he says this, and then we'll wrap up. He says, one will hardly die for a righteous man. He's He's like, again, even if you're like this close, perhaps, for a good man, somebody would be willing to die. But God demonstrates his own love. God's love leads to action in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Again, it's like, like God said, what can I do to help? And Jesus was like, Whoa, this is gonna be costly. A- and, and Peter and Paul, they witnessed it, or, or they knew the people who witnessed it. And they, they tried to, to apply it. And they said, like, imagine what it would look like in a family if we took that same posture, if we gave ourselves up for the benefit of the other person? What if the members of our family took their cues from what God did through Christ and they extended that to the members of their family? Then in our families, it would not be might makes right. It, it, It would not be I'm dad and I'm in charge and everybody's gonna do what dad says and we're all just scared all the time. No, it would be like Jesus, recognizing that all of the authority that was given to him got up and started washing feet. Who right, leveraged his authority for the benefit of the people under it. Imagine people leveraging their time and their talents and their money and their resources for the sake of everybody else in the family. That's what Paul's getting at. Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church by giving himself up for her. Children, obey your parents. And parents, fathers, don't exasperate your kids. That's what it looks like when everybody comes together and practices mutual submission and asks the question, what can I do to help? And one last thought before we're done. If you're in a moment when you want to ask that question the least, it's probably when you need to the most. When you want to ask that question, what can I do to help the least? It is probably when you need to do it the most for the benefit of your family. Let me pray for you. God, it's another thing. It seems like most of following you is kind of simple to understand and so difficult to apply. And, And God, we can be resistant to this because we're afraid that we're gonna lose somehow if we give up, but God, you taught us that the only way to gain is to actually give of ourselves, that the only way to gain what really matters is to lay down our lives for those closest to us. And God, I just pray that it could be so in our families, that out of reverence for you and the sacrifice that you made and the posture that you took, that we could model that behavior in our families as well, that we could ask how I can help to the people who matter most to us, and that we'd be willing to loan them ourselves for their benefit. And God, together as families, that we could look more like you in so doing. So God, I pray that you would give us clarity around how to apply what we've heard today, that you would give us the courage to actually do it in our families. And God, I pray that it would make a huge difference, not only in our families, but in our community and in our world. Yeah, we pray and we ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.